Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. But did, why, did, why do you get all flummoxy around Angelina Jolie? Oh, now that in particular, well, I'll tell you precisely why, and I'm glad you asked that. That's a completely different thing. Can't make any films, Tom, if there are no shoot, uh, if there are no scripts to shoot. Okay, well, well ex- explain every show that's on the Fox network. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mrs. North of South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... Sunday, May 18th, 2014, episode 207. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show. Well, it's volume two of the best of The Tom Gully Show, and like volume one, many of you may be asking yourselves, doesn't there have to be a good show or two for there to be a best of? Well, don't worry your pretty little heads. Tonight, it's only the succulent filet of the Tom Gully Show as we talk to our good friend, the amazing film critic and comedian Chris Gore about The Pocket Beer, Film Threat Magazine, and Angelina Jolie. Then we'll talk The Andy Griffith Show, Maverick, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., the late great Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., with television historian extraordinaire Ed Robertson. It's the best of The Tom Gully Show, Volume 2, tonight on The Tom Gully Show. It's time to pay the toll. Let the truth I am the Tom Gully Show, Translator 3000. Translating newsmakers for humans. Translating Alec Baldwin. In this business, in the modern era, all of us, we make appointments with the press. This is an appointment with the press. We make ourselves available as an obligation per our contract to our employers to represent the product and help to sell the product. And then when I walk out the door, that's over. I don't have, when the guy jumps out of the bushes with a camera and tries to take a picture of my kid, they want to say to you, well, here's another appointment you have with the press. Translation. Yes, my daughter. That's right. My daughter, if you recall, I did not make an appointment with the press when I left a long, belligerent, profanity-laced diatribe against my darling daughter. I also did not make an appointment with the press when I went cuckoo on a plane when asked to stop playing words with friends. I can't remember if I made an appointment with the press when I said I'd leave America if Bush won the election. Wait. Where am I right now? Oh, yes. America. Land of the free and the home of hitting photographers. Apparently, I didn't get the memo that says if you become a famous movie star, guys with cameras are around a lot. It's a real bitch being a millionaire. This has been the Tom Gully Show Translator 3000. Good day. And speaking of film, my first guest is an independent film icon, founder of Film Threat Magazine, self-described nerd liberty, author, publisher, editor, producer, director author again, because he writes lots of stuff, entrepreneur, impresario, raconteur, super genius, and the pioneer of the pocket beer, a guy who's actually let me sleep on his couch a few times. He's here from G4's Attack of the Show. Meet film expert extraordinaire, Chris Gore. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I I appreciate that introduction. You forgot Coxman. Uh, 
I was going to let you say that yourself. <laughs> um, uh, I know that's a big part of, of the Chris Gore experience, one that I haven't experienced, but I, I've got some questions about that later. Sure. You do so much stuff that, you know, it's difficult to focus in on one thing, but I swear to God, in like four centuries, when archaeologists are shifting through the rubble of our civilization right now, I, I think the thing that you're going to be most noted for is the pocket beer. I'm fascinated by the pocket beer. How did the pocket beer come about and how did it start to catch on? Well, I, I first of all, great first question. I appreciate it. Um, I, I, I do tell my friends that I keep my career portfolio diversified between doing television and writing books and, and um, other sort of adventures I'm in, and including the internet websites and whatnot. But, but the pocket beer is something that I wanted to prove that I could create a meaningless and stupid trend. And I wanted to introduce that to the world as sort of just a, a, main, a word that then um, you could hear someone discuss in another state. I mean, where do stupid uh, terms come from? Where, where do trends? I mean, it really is just someone introducing it. So I, I, I had always sort of just, you know, just out of practicality, taken a beer and normally I double fist because a lot of events I go to, so this is where the practical, if you want to talk about the invention of pocket beer, it became practical because I would go to a lot of Hollywood events that had an open bar, which open bar, the lines are generally incredibly long. And I would often go up and get, I would double fist or more if I could convince the guy like, hey, I've got my buddies, I want to get them some drinks. And I may, may even have been getting them some drinks. It was just practical to put it in my pocket, and I put it in my back pocket or my front pocket. Then I started realizing that, hey, you know, with the advent of mobile devices and how mobile devices have become so, you know, just a part of everyday life, pocket beer affords the opportunity to, to drink hands-free, where you can just holster your beer in your front pocket. There's something very kind of manly about it. And by holstering the beer, you're now free to text uh, or receive text message or receive naked photos of girls that you've met recently and you've maybe known for some time and you want to get to know them better. So, this, so it really was a practical thing. In addition, when you're at these events, the other advantage of having a pocket beer is it does draw the, draw the eye closer to the crotch. So when you're, let's say you're, you're maybe having a casual conversation with a woman your arm goes down, you, 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 you know, take the beer out of the holster, your front pocket, take a sip, put the beer back down, it draws her eye down to that area, which to me is a not-so-subtle not so subtle invitation. So um, the pocket beer, I, I feel, and while I do know that there are a lot of women there that do pocket their beers, it's just not as practical. I, I don't think that the, the pockets on a lot of women's jeans are, are they're not wide enough to, to, to fit that beer. So I'm pretty proud of the fact that I tried to popular, I really tried to popularize this on Twitter by hashtag pocket beer and encouraging people to send me photos of their holstered beers and the best one I would pick and send a prize. So uh, I did that and now I will well, maybe once every, once a week, every couple of weeks, uh, throw out a pocket beer photo or something hashtag related to pocket beer. Now, how do I monetize this? I have no clue, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but I'm but I, I can say that it is one of my innovations that I'm proud of. And if it if it becomes popular in the American lexicon, and if Obama uses it in a speech, you know what? I hate Sarah Palin. And if she used pocket beer in a speech, I would I would consider that a, a victory, not the one I would be looking for, but uh, just the fact that pocket beer would begin to be used by regular folks. You know, if, I, if I'm remembered for it, great, but I really just want it to become popular like bacon and eggs. Do you ever invite a lady 
to grab your pocket beer. I would think that would be a, a you know a, another way because as you say, when they look at the pocket beer, they see you take a drink of it. It's almost breaking down a barrier mentally for them subconsciously. Like, oh, he took something from his groinal region and put it in his mouth. Why shouldn't I feel at ease doing that? Precisely. Yeah, yeah it, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that, that's exactly why this was created. I always felt like the guys that had lots of sisters, they, they always had that, that special chick language figured out. Oh, no, I, I, I pride myself I can speak chick. So, <laughs> um, and like I say, I, I don't consider myself a success. I consider myself in comparison to most men who are, you know, sexist and just kind of, for the most part, jerks. And they're just trying to get in a girl's pants, you know. For me, not that I'm not trying to do that, but the, the point is, is that, look, I'd rather, I, I, I initially just want to form a, a friendship, find some common ground. If it leads to somewhere naked, then, then that's just, maybe it was meant to be. So be it. Yeah. Yeah. Now the sale of film threat, it was kind of a, I, weirdly enough, it was a melancholy moment for myself because, you know, I knew you when you were very first starting it or shortly thereafter. And uh, I was imagining what it was like for you with the year kind of perspective. Have you, you know, has it changed the way you felt about it? Do you look back on it in any different way now that it's been a little time past? Um, I, no, I feel really good about it. First of all, um, at the Sundance Film Festival and I was really going there to do a book signing, um, not so much covering the film festival, but just really going to the book signing and then to announce publicly that after 25 years that I was going to shut down Film Threat and it's been a good run and thank you. You know, I didn't want to, um, you know, have it be something like, you know, I, I feel like Film Threat had its heyday in, in sort of the, the mid-90s, like with indie film kind of hitting a hype. Different sort of, had different successes later as a website only, but... I felt like, you know, I started this thing when I was a teenager and I was a kid in high school. It's been 25 years of doing it. I mean, how many people can say they've done something for 25 years? And, and I, feel like, um, I feel like Film Threat really provided this great service, but I feel like there's so, there are more media outlets covering movies than movies come out in a year. That's not a joke. Right. And I feel like at the time we were kind of this lone voice. Now there are many voices and, and heck, someone could start a blog and be interesting and be bigger than one of the top film websites if, if, they, if they're delivering interesting content, whether it be YouTube or Tumblr or, or just uh, WordPress, whatever, whatever way they're communicating. So I just felt like, you know, and, and for the last decade, frankly, film threat had been more of a burden as I've tried to transition my career into other things, i.e. making movies with my big fan independent movie, um, a television career, which over the last like, 10, 12 years, I, I've fell into initially, but, um, and I would almost say the same thing I said about, about pocket beer and women. It's like, I, it's not that I'm good on TV. It's that I think a lot of people that do the specific thing that I do may not be so great. So I kind of stand out at just being different because the most part, I mostly care about being funny rather than, um, I don't consider myself a very good film reviewer. Um, I give myself three out of five stars. I had to <laughs> well, rate myself. But, I, I see you as like the uh, the Gen X Gene Shallot. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I love Gene Shallot, uh, who's I, I always love to sort of hacky uh, reviews um, filled with puns. I can quote one for you if you would like. Um, sure. Gene Shallot, Gene Shallot's review of RoboCop 2. This movie made me nuts and I wanted to bolt. <laughs> one of the things I started working on behind the scenes and, and – this is, this is going to be years off, but I've been working on a book about the 25 years of doing film threat and, in addition, collecting material to be used in a documentary. I don't know how I – would, I would be involved in the documentary, but I don't know to how I would be involved. But there's so much footage. I mean, I've got hundreds of VHS tapes to, that I'm converting uh, to a drive, uh, photographs, just all these like crazy stories. Um, a lot of people that were affected by film threat initially – uh, there's just a lot of cool, a lot of cool aspects to it. So, um, aspects to that story that that remain untold. And I know from your enthusiastic support, you know a lot of those stories, but a lot of people don't know. And I still will get every week some kid that watches me on G4. What 
makes Chris Gore a film expert? Why are you an expert? It's like, and I feel like after a while, I feel like such a jerk, like I've written some books on film. One of them might be required reading, depending on what film school you go to. Let's see, I did this movie magazine. I started as a zine that was Xerox that then was a professional magazine that split off into two that then I started a DVD distribution company and then which we put out 30 movies. I Let's see, I produced and co-wrote a movie that I put out and it was in theaters and picked up by Anchor Bay and you could buy it at Best Buy and, and I personally produced the DVD of it and all the extras on it. And I don't know what makes me a film expert. I just think that you know, as compared to other critics, I've tried to, I get bored doing one thing really easily, so I like to branch off and do other kinds of projects, and and Film Threat was always sort of this great, I never really made any money with Film Threat, but Film Threat was like this tentacles that it always provided opportunities because people loved it, and those opportunities turned into things that actually made money, like doing television and, and uh, other projects, but, but Film Threat itself was this thing that just sort of was a money-losing venture from the beginning, and really about the passion uh, for indie film. Well, you know, uh, I think that the, is that a long enough and detailed <laughs> answer? Because I could definitely talk more, Tom, if you want me to, like, I'm happy to talk to you more about film thread. I could go on and on if you want me to. It's really up to you. <laughs> I, I enjoy hearing about it. No, no. But I mean, this is why, uh, you know, I work with uh, Candace Bailey on attack of the show and I hear people complain like, Oh, she cuts you off when you're talking. Her job is to cut me off. Because it's like, <laughs> Like a podcast where you and I can sit and talk for an hour. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's no time limit. It's what digital space, and uh, you know, are we interesting enough to keep listening to? I hope so. But yeah. television is different. It's structured, and I'm generally on for between four and a half and five and a half minutes a week. And I've got three DVDs to cover. Sometimes we do the segment that's a sort of offshoot called Rapid Fire, a part of DVDs Day, where I talk about try to talk about ten movies at least. I love that. In like thirty seconds, it's like a race every time. But um. So, uh, you know, Candace, her job is to cut me off. Her job is to keep me moving. Her job is to be a good TV host and to, to move me along when I tend to ramble or go off in a million directions. And I will do that as evidenced by the first 20 minutes of this podcast. Well, you know, my, the, this, this particular show is how much I talk depends on who the guest is. If the guest was Shelly Hack right now, I guarantee you I would be doing a lot of talking. Right, right. Okay. You know, and uh, but you know, I do remember the very first issue of Film Threat that I saw. A friend of mine from South Bend, Indiana, sent me a copy of it out of the blue, just out of the blue. Said you're going to love this magazine. It was the James Dean cover. I think oh. that uh, did Glenn do that or did Theakston do that cover? Uh, uh, that was Glenn Barr. That was Glenn Barr, and uh, I opened the cover. And my eyes were drawn instantly to the inside, you know, the masthead type thing where it said, and the first thing was hate mail, letters from our readers, fuck them. And I went, <laughs> I have to have, I, and I, it was electric. That magazine was electric. And the point that I'm trying to make is I think that that film threat attitude is what people fell in love with. I mean, the well, content was the content, but it had a definitive attitude about it. And I think that you have retained that through all the stuff that you have done. I think that's that's a, a part of the Chris Gore when when he's on TV or when he's doing you know grindcore or when you're at the Consumer Electronics, whatever you're doing, that same sort of half uh, court jester, half uh, Hunter S. Thompson type of a a thing that you do is is a part of that still. Well, it's something I frankly, it's something I can't not do because it really is. It's just, that's just my personality was always, I mean, when I was in high school, which is like when I created Film Thread, I, I came up with the idea for Film Thread and I did a layout. I didn't really have any articles. I was just sort of developing this concept. I designed the logo and kind of planned it out. But the first issue didn't really come out until my first year of uh, college. But um, uh, it's just something where like, you know, I would get really good grades in school. I mean, A's and B's. I was like, yeah, four A's, two B's. I'd always get, you know, it was a 3.5 average. I did well in high school, but I was in the office a lot for talking back to teachers, not for getting in fights or physical fights and stuff. I was playing jokes, talking back to teachers. I would, I would interrupt them and say, technically, that's actually not true. And then I would go, or I would question their logic. I mean, I was a, I was as big a prick then as I am now. Um, <laughs> But I like to think I'm a prick for good, not evil. 
So um, I, I just, the, to me, that, that anything that's phony or not, just like any sort of thing that's not the truth bugs me. I, I really am just, anything that's an injustice bugs me. It's just something that's like, eh, it's just, you know, and it's, it, it's everything from, uh, it spans the gamut of everything from like nerds being teased in school or still made fun of at Comic-Con to uh, any racial injustice or injustice with regard to sexual orientation. Um, I mean, I'm really in support of gay marriage, and I really want to see that legalized, um, if only for the selfish reason, because I want to see a TV show called Groomzillas. Because <laughs> imagine the drama of two queens getting married. Um, I can't imagine it. I mean, uh, the women on Bridezillas are bad enough. But two males getting married would be, that would be my dream show. I would love to see that. So um, I've always kind of been, it's just my personality. And, and I really had given up doing television actually before G4. Um, because every experience I had with TV, I was really kind of feeling it out. I didn't know what to do. And I'd never been on TV before. And the first time I was on it, I had to read teleprompter. And I was like, so the secret to reading a teleprompter is you read it but pretend you're not reading. Let me see if I can do that. And then I just did it the first time. So I, I had something of an affinity for it. Um, but That's the secret to stand up too, is to do your right. routine that you know by heart as if it's the first time you've ever said it. Uh, it's funny because I just started doing stand up and I feel like I've been doing a version of that. Like whenever I do panel discussions and whatnot, and I do, I've done panel discussions, I've done speaking engagements for God, like 15 years I've had a... a done college speaking tours and, and whatnot. So I've done sort of, and I always work jokes into it. I just never thought of it as stand-up per se, because a lot of times I'm trying to tell inspirational stories related to the film business um, mixed with truth so that people don't do stupid things like make an indie film uh, with their credit cards. So, um, but I've been doing kind of a version of what stand-up is, but nothing in comparison to anyone who does it especially for a living. And and just recently started doing it saying, you know, I'm just going to take the funny parts of things I say, my weird insights about stuff, and just put it together into a good seven-minute set, which was, which was actually fairly easy. Was it successful? I don't know. I mean, I've been testing it out. I'm trying to put together um, enough material. Um, well, I have enough material. It's a matter of whittling it down and, 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 and honing it to the, to the best stuff. I want to uh, put out a CD this year. So there'll be some sort of CD, but I'm sure I'll be, I'll be crucified like I've been with anything, um, you know, that I try to do. That's not what people think I'm supposed to do. But did, why, did, why do you get all flummoxy around Angelina Jolie? Oh, now that in particular, well, I'll tell you precisely why. And I'm glad you asked that. That's a completely different thing. She is the sexiest woman I've ever met in my life. She exudes sex. And I'm a guy that I kind of, I, I like sex. I got to be honest with you. I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm telling you something you don't know. But I, <laughs> I, I uh, every time I've met her, it's it's. My phone's was, ringing in the background in case you can't hear that. But oh anyway. well, I can't hear it. That's at all. nice. Yeah. But I um I uh, in terms of Angelina, I just got really nervous when so I walked in, and she just exudes. You can feel it. It's a vibe, you know. Like, you know, you get you get you get signals from girls when you meet them. There's a vibe with her that is just like, she just oozes it. I mean, it's it's incredible, and she's really. The only person I really feel like she is like old school star. She is a movie star in all in all sense of what that word means. I don't in, know. In the Grace the Kelly sort of yeah. uh, the old yeah. school right. Lauren Bacallish. Like, and too nice, too nice, like to everyone. And when I got all flustered, she was like understanding, like it's okay. And I'm sure this happens to her. And when I was doing this junket, it was actually I was in Paris for a junket uh, for the tourist and interviewing Angelina and um, two guys who are gay actually also interviewed her that day and they said we would switch teams to be with her. <laughs> she basically was turning guys from gay to liking vagina. Yeah, That's tough. Ask a, gay man, ask a gay man how much they like cock. That's, yeah. a, that's like going you know, first gear to fourth in a Mack truck. It's just not an easy shift. Hey man, I actually got to take off. But we can make this a two-parter. I can come on uh, a future episode. I think you do a couple more, and then you do, like, the part two. Sounds so. good to me, man. Okay, great. Yeah, it's great catching up with you. Let's do this again. Okay. All right, let's do it again, like, soon, like, in the next month. 
Sounds good. I mean, even if we don't do much of a podcast. So I, that sounds great to me. You're a busy man. So you just tell me when and I'll, I'll jump on him. Okay. All right. Take care. I'll, I'll right. see you on Facebook. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, later. Bye. And now here's some of our talk with Ed Robertson of TV Confidential, one of the very few programs I recommend other than my own. I think maybe it's the only one I recommend other than my own. Well, except for Pod Crash. That's the one Chris Gore does. Anyway, if you're a fan of Maverick, The Rockford Files, The Fugitive, or a number of other shows, you need to go out and get one of Ed Robertson's books. They are recognized in the television industry as the ultimate guides and handbooks for these programs. They are pure pleasure. You can check Ed out at edrobertson.com. Starting things off here, Ed, just recently we've had two major, major, major television stars pass on. In fact, movie stars and entertainment stars that kind of cross the board everywhere, and that's Andy Griffith and Ernest Borgnine. Uh, could you talk just a little bit about, first of all, the Andy Griffith show and, and its place in TV history and, and some of the things that uh, are of interest to you or, or maybe notable to you about that series? Well, it's um, the, thing, the, th- the thing about Andy Griffith, Tom, and I think you and I would, would agree on this, is that um, he's one of those people who's appeal crosses I guess now three generations um, the, the uh, up until a year ago I believe the Andy Griffith show was the highest rated show on TV land even doing better numbers than some of their original programming uh, which says something was it says a lot yeah a show is 50 years old and uh it is it is not just it is not just baby boomers who are still watching uh the andy griffith show i mean there, there's a whole there are at least two generations who grew up watching the reruns and what's what was very clever about the andy griffith show is that um you know it it Paints a picture of small town life. Uh, that's okay. Probably, probably it, 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 it's a place that doesn't exist. Uh, but it was done that way. I mean, Andy Griffith himself said that the show was shot in the '60s, but it was really more or less, you know, uh, a throwback to the '30s, where you know times were simpler and you didn't have the sort of uh, political unrest and racial unrest and all the other things that were bubbling to the surface in the 1960s. You could turn on the Andy Griffith show and sort of forget about your problems and go back to a time when, when, when things were simpler. What, you know, I mean, you, you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, you know, being out of work or not being able to pay your bills. You know, life was a lot simpler. And so, uh, so it was, it was a throwback to a simpler time. And while the show was about uh, small town life and, um, you know, where, where life is a little slower and, uh, you know, the, 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 the people in Mayberry were not necessarily the brightest bulbs in, in, in the batch, Andy Griffith, the producer, always made sure there was a dignity to the characters on that show. They were never... You know, I mean, it's very easy to make fun of, to to, to resort to uh, caricatures in any form of television, but particularly when you're you're portraying, you know, um, know, small town, you know, a a, a small town community. You know, it's uh, it's easy to say, you know, the, you you see images of deliverance and, and, and stuff like that. Whereas with, with the Andy Griffith show, I mean, you know, they were portrayed as, you know, well-rounded and, and they were given dignity. There, if, if there is, if, if, um, when they were putting together the shows, if a joke came up that just sort of made fun of a, of, of a character without moving the story along, they would throw out the joke. Well, and, and- not that it wasn't a funny show or that it didn't didn't do what it was setting out to do, but the Beverly Hillbillies almost did poke fun at rural America. I mean, it, it was they were certainly a fish out of water, but they they didn't have any hesitation whatsoever to make fun of sort of that backwoods kind of an attitude. And you're right, the Andy Griffith show really did 
uh, celebrate more than uh, poke fun at uh, that sort of thing. Well, the, the Beverly Hillbillies, that, that's a different animal, Tom, because they didn't just poke fun of small town life. They poked fun at the big city. They poked fun at everybody. You know, they would have, um, you, you, you would have extremes like Jethro was the room and, uh, you know, Granny was, was, uh, you know, was the old school moonshiner, you know, with all the concoctions, while Mr. Drysdale, you know, was, was, was the greedy banker. I mean, look, well, maybe it's not safe to say this these days, you know, but not, 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 not all bankers are, you know, are ruthless and, and not all, not all corporations are bad. I mean, but, but the, the point is, the point is it was, it, it was, it was an extreme done for effect. And the voice of reason was Jed, um, mm-hmm. a Buddy Ebsen's character. You know, he was he he he, he was the one who was he, he played straight man to all these nutty characters. Kind of like Andy. Kind of like Andy, and kind of like Jim Rockford. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Andy Griffith, like um, like uh, Andy Taylor, like uh, like like Jed Clampett was sort of the uh, uh, the voice to reason, the sea of calm and an ocean of nuttiness. And, uh, and, and, you know, you, you need a, I mean, you, you need a character like that, that grounds a show that uh, brings it home at the end of the half an hour and gives you, and gives you a reason to want to come back week after week after week. You mentioned Andy Griffith, the producer. Can you talk a little bit about, I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that, yes, he was a great entertainer, but then he gets given a television show and he seemed to just sort of you know, walk into it with complete ease and from all the accounts of people like Ron Howard and and others, that set was a real family and he had a real definitive way, as you say, that he thought about realizing his television vision. Can you talk about that a little bit? I can't remember where I read this from, but um, uh, as, as, as you may know, Tom, the origin of the Andy Griffith show started on the Danny Thomas show, Make Room for Daddy, both of which were produced by Sheldon Leonard. And um, Andy did, uh, Andy Griffith did a guest shot on the uh, Danny Thomas show playing a small town uh, sheriff, not unlike Andy Taylor, but probably a little more probably a little closer to the uh, to the Will Stockdale uh, character that he played in No Time for Sergeants. He was a little more of a, you know, he was, he was a little more folksy and, and <laughs> you know, a um, uh, little, little more exaggerated than the Andy Taylor we, you know, uh, we, we all, uh, have, you know, came to know and love. In, when he did the uh, when he did the appearance on the Danny Thomas show, Andy Griffith recalled the, the first impression he got was that there was a lot of yelling and it was very intense. Um, and 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 at the time, uh, both CBS and Sheldon Leonard were talking to him about uh, doing doing a weekly series and this appearance on the Danny Thomas show, as I understand, was more or less a backdoor pilot. And Andy Griffith shed, uh, uh, said to Sheldon Leonard, I'm, if, if this is what it's like to do a television show, I'm not sure I want to do this. It's too stressful. There's a lot of yelling. This isn't going to work for me. And Sheldon Leonard said, Andy, the show, uh, the lead of a show sets the tone of the show, sets the pace of the show. He, he, he likes to yell and get things out of the system. That's just the way he works. And if you talk to anybody else who worked on the Andy, uh, on the Danny Thomas show, they'll say that was, that was more or less their impression. There was a lot of yelling, you know, because that's just, that's, that's, that's the way he worked. If you do your own show, Andy, you don't have to do that. You do it the way you want to do it. And what worked for Andy, was you know to be calm and to talk about things not that there weren't any disagreements you know you you work together on a day in day out basis tom for eight years you're going to have disagreements but sure you, you you talk things out and 
there was a sense of family, there was a sense of mutual respect, top to bottom, not only among the cast members, but among the crew members, everyone down the line. I mean, and and uh, you, you mentioned before, you know, people like Ron Howard, uh, when they talk about this show, they, they, they talk about what a pleasant time it was, which considering you work, you're working in television, which is a very fast-paced, frenetic, uh, a frenetic uh, type of atmosphere where you know you've got to you've got to shoot it fast and shoot it you know and, and get it delivered to the network in order to meet the deadlines because remember back then they're shooting 30 35 shows a year yeah yeah so that's a lot of volume and a lot of uh i mean it's intense it's that hurry up and wait thing it's a grueling long day but every time you do work you are working at a very intense fast pace that you cannot have a mistake it's not like a movie today or a series today where oh we made a mistake we'll just we'll just delay the episode a week or two and and fill in with something no it was it was deliver 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 and all the old uh, stars of that day that was their chief complaint Richard Boone I I don't want to do this I'm exhausted uh, even your uh your point of uh, great interest, Jim Jim Garner is like look it's not the show or doing the show it's the exhaustion that I'm under well, especially if you're doing a show uh, like uh, like Garner did with Rockford Files, and much to, uh, much the same with Maverick, where it's more or less a single lead show. I mean, yes, you have guest characters, and you may have recurring characters such as Angel Martin, such as Beth Davenport, or in the case of Andy Griffith, such as Barney Fife, uh, such as Opie, such as Aunt B. You know, you've got other characters to and other actors to work off of, but basically, you know, it's the, it's called the Andy Griffith Show. He's on virtually every scene. That mm-hmm. takes a lot. That 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 takes an awful lot. And as you say, you know, with television, it's not so much. You know, uh, I don't. It, the, the 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 rule back then and and, and still very much today, especially on, on network television, is. I don't care whether it's done well as long as it's done tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. Because it's you got you got production schedules to meet. So to so to have so to, so so to have a set an environment that is more or less calm, easy going, much the way Andy was as a personality and as a behind the scenes uh, producer. To have that you know, carry on and, and, and be the lasting memory of so many of the people who worked on the show, that is a real testament to Andy Griffith, the man. Well, first of all, I have to say I'm a little disappointed you didn't do your world-famous imitation of Sheldon Leonard while you were recounting that story, but um, kidding. Uh, <laughs> I will do mine at, at another time. I love Sheldon Leonard, uh, but... Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, Sheldon Leonard is, gosh, I guess the best way is he was in so many of the shows he produced as a, a sort of a tough, but he's the uh, Joe the bartender in It's a Wonderful Life. I'm giving away wings. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, he's got the heaviest New York accent. And because I'm an old time radio freak, in one of my favorite episodes of Duffy's Tavern, uh, Arch challenges a guy to a fight. Uh, you know, in, in jest, and the guy takes him up on it, and everyone in the bar tells him, "Look, he was just sticking up for a friend." And uh, Sheldon Leonard comes in and acts like he gets beat up. It's it's really pretty funny. Okay, now the the reason that we're here today, and first of all, let me begin by saying I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Oh, you're just saying that. Though. Your your book in its second edition, Maverick, Legend of the West. Uh, as you know, I'm a big, big fan of James Garner and I'm naturally would be a, a fan of that series. Um, I'm just going to say, go ahead and start talking because you know so much about this. And I think that Maverick, uh, like a series, another series I really love called uh, Have Gun, Will Travel, has kind of fallen through the cracks in terms of ease of accessibility. And uh, I, I wish that wasn't the case. Can you can you maybe set up Maverick and uh, then just do your thing? I don't care well, what you say. Just talk about it. Well, uh, Maverick, let's know the West dot com. Uh, <laughs> 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 let's, 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 let's not forget that. Um, a couple of things. If if you like James Garner, if you like the Rockford Files, you will want to read 
uh, the story of Maverick. And as you say, Tom, it is not as, you know, the, 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 the popularity of Maverick has been eclipsed by, you know, the popularity of Rockford, partly because Rockford is still, you know, Rockford has never really left television. I mean, there, there are, there are there are cable channels in countries that we don't even know of that are what that are they're not only playing Rockford you know, somewhere out there someone is not only is someone watching Rockford someone is watching Rockford for the first time you know um, mm -hmm. but if it were not but if it were not for Maverick there would be no Rockford because the the the, the history of the of the two shows are very very closely um, very closely related now Maverick had a nice Play in um, on, on the Encore Western Channel uh, up until a few months ago. The first season of Maverick is now available on DVD. So uh, you know, so so and 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 there's talk that Warner's may release um, the you know, the second and third seasons as well, which you know uh, ho hopefully will you know. Uh, Help other people, you know, discover you know this 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 great western, which is which was, you know, look, Maverick came about uh, at a time when there were like um, close to thirty westerns on network television. Uh, you had everything from Half Gun World Travel to Gunsmoke to Bat Masterson to Restless Gun to uh, Laramie to a wagon train and Sugarfoot, you name it. Sugarfoot, yeah. a lot of horses, a lot of cowboys. Uh, a lot of baked beans, and uh, uh, but not too many of those westerns are are remembered today. Maverick is remembered because it took all the trappings of a western and turned them inside out. Instead of a, you know, a, usually in a in a in a western movie or a western TV show, the villain wears black. Maverick was the hero. Maverick, Maverick dressed in black. Uh, in most uh, westerns, the the dude gambler is considered a lowlife. Maverick was a gambler, and uh, Maverick was your hero. Uh, most 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 heroes would not hesitate about just stepping in in the middle of uh, you know a gunfire or meeting the town bully at high noon to do the right thing. Maverick would think twice about that because Maverick was more concerned with uh, making money, uh, living a long life, and not getting involved in any kind of trouble if he can avoid it, uh, which are not exactly heroic <laughs> qualities. But uh, you know, when when you watch him, uh, just as as when you watch Jim uh, Jim Rockford in the Rockford Files. You you know you can you can identify with that because um, who needs know, the trouble? Yeah yeah you, 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 you look look it, none of us none of us want to none of us want to you know get into you know, bother ourselves with with, with 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 problems if we can avoid it. But if push came to shove, we like to think we would do the right thing. And when push came to shove, Brett Maverick always did the right thing. Brett Maverick or his brother Bart, you know, um, as you know, played by Jack Kelly, who, who joined the season uh, at, who joined the show um, about ten shows into the uh, about eight or ten shows into the first season out of necessity because, uh, and again, we're, we're talking about the early days of uh, you know a television production. Um, Warner uh, Maverick was one of the was one of the first hour long westerns. Um, Cheyenne was the, you know, which is also done by Warner Brothers. Uh, was uh, was the first hour-long western, but Maverick was one of the first hour-long weekly westerns, and um, they were still sort of you know inventing the process of making television back in 1957. And uh, uh, Roy Huggins, who created Maverick and produced the show for the first two seasons, um, he realized you know very early in the game that. Um, you know, because the way because the way the um, television uh, the production schedule was set up back then, uh, there was no way he would get the shows made on time to meet the broadcast uh, air dates unless he brought in a second lead and shot two shows at once. And so that's how that that's how Jack Kelly was introduced um, as as James Garner's alternating lead 
on Maverick. And so one week you'd have uh, Jack Kelly as Bart Maverick, and uh, the next week you'd have Jim Garner as Brett Maverick. In some cases, you'd have both. Well, the um, inavailability of the show in terms of, you know, there's a lot of shows out there I recommend to people um, because I'm a freak. And I, I think these programs are, are worth spreading and, and uh, people don't realize the quality of these shows just because they're shot in black and white or they're a little stage left, stage righty. Uh, they, they don't really take in the full, I don't know, glory of them. And for years, the only thing I could find at least was a, a three episode set of Mavericks that actually I think were a, a tad atypical of your normal Maverick episode. But then again, it was an atypical Western, so maybe they were more emblematic. That was the Shady Deal at Sunny Acres, Pappy, and Gunshy. And, yeah. And uh, what a wonderful collection. It was. It's, it's not like ones I have to go, uh, well, yeah, just only watch the third one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, this was a great uh, DVD to be able to recommend to people, and without fail, uh, they all loved all three of those episodes. Yeah, if you, you know, uh, that DVD came out uh, about, uh, I think it came out around 2005 or 2006, kind of as a sampler, kind of as a Whitman sampler, or I should say a Warner Brothers sampler of Maverick, you know, and uh, and they're, they're three of the most remembered, three of the best remembered shows. Shady Deal, some would say, is the best, uh, is the best episode of Maverick. Um, uh, Gunshy is, is, is the famous parody of Gunsmoke, which got a lot of publicity when it was first, um, uh, aired in 1959. Uh, and, um, just still, still, still plays well today. It really does. It really does. does. Still, still plays well today. Pappy is remembered because it's, um, it's 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 the one it's it's the only time uh, the character of Pappy is seen on Maverick. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, when whenever whenever um, Brett or Bart got into a scrape, you know, uh, they would they would they would um, uh, they would call call up the wisdom of the dear old Pappy. You know, ain't heart never filled a flush. Uh, <laughs> You know, work is fine. Work is fine for doing time, but it's a, it's a shaky way to make a living. And, and the idea of Pappy was to kind of, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, playing on the idea that Maverick was not a conventional hero and Maverick would do things that are probably politically incorrect. Well, Pappy would say things that are even more off the mark, you know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, for effect. It was done for effect. Now, in the case, uh, now, but, but the the idea, what well, the idea behind Pappy was much the same as the idea behind Mrs. Columba, is that you know you're, you're, you you the idea was <clears throat> excuse me through Brett Maverick or his brother Bart you would create this image of this wild old man, but he was never meant to be shown on camera. Much the same as with Mrs. Colombo, you know, you had this image of of this sweet old, of, of the sweet you know woman who was the you know the, the rock behind Lieutenant Colombo, but you were never meant to see her in the course of the show. Now, when um, when Roy Huggins left uh, Maverick after two seasons, Roy, Roy created Roy created the show and produced the first two seasons. Um, the, 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 uh, uh, Warner Brothers, the, the front office at Warner Brothers, you know, decided, um, you know, they, they changed the tone of the show and, um, uh, and, and one of the first shows that was made, uh, was happened to be the one that, um, introduced, uh, Pappy on screen. Now, there are people who disagree with me on this, you know, uh, and there's, there's yeah, pa- Pappy's kind of interesting because you know um, after the show aired, the numbers dropped, you know, significantly. Now it's easy to say that that's the reason. It's easy to say, well, there are a lot more other you know factors behind it. Um, 
and that may be, you know, the, the fun thing about talking about stuff like this, Tom, is that, you know, you could disagree. And it's not like we're talking about world peace. It's television. And uh, what. So, yeah, it's more important. Well, it is, it is more important than world peace. Yeah. But no, but what, what I, it's, you know, what I like may not be what you like. And it doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong or you're, or you're right and I'm wrong. It's just we disagree on that. And, uh, and there are people, and I've gotten, I've gotten emails and letters over the years who, you know, who don't, from, from readers who don't necessarily agree with my take on Pappy. But my, my, my position is, you know, if you look at the numbers, and uh, the fact is the numbers dropped, you know, the week after Pappy aired, and they never recovered. It's kind of hard to ignore that. You know, the whole, uh, they basically, that's the uh, jumping the shark for Maverick then. In, in some respects, yeah. And because also the, 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 the Roy Huggins was a, was, was a master at, you know, blending humor with a dramatic format without ever going too far afield. You know, never doing anything that would sacrifice the, the plot, that would sacrifice the integrity of the story. When Roy left, Maverick kind of veered into more slapstick and the humor became a lot more broad. And that was that was very much uh, typified with the Pappy episode. Um, well, and the, the 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 when you finally do see Pappy, it is amazingly anticlimactic. Yeah. So you know And poor uh, poor makeup. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> really bad. But uh, the yeah. the shady deal at Sunny Acres, uh, if I could, just just one tip of the cap. When I think of old, nostalgic, golden age television, one of the first actors I think of is John Daner. And I think that guy from radio to television, I mean, he is is my personal atypical stock character actor from that era, be it Westerns. And I know he was huge in Westerns, but he also did other kinds of shows and programs and um, it's just, I'm so proud and so happy that he's in that particular episode because when you brought John Daner in, you brought in everything that sort of came with him, uh, and having him as the foil for, for Maverick in that episode, I think was just a perfect casting choice. Les Martinson, um, who was one of the, you know, directors, um, on Maverick, he was, uh, he, he, he was under contract at Warner Brothers in the 50s and 60s, and Les went on to direct a lot of, um, television throughout the, up until about the 90s. I mean, Les, Les was one of, Les Martinson was one of the top directors in, in, in the television industry, and, um, Les described John Daner as a money-in-the-bank actor, meaning you never had to worry about when, when, when you knew whether you cast him yourself or whether you found out that uh, he was, you know, uh, he was going to be working this particular episode. You never had to worry about him because he... He was a total pro. He knew his lines. He would hit the mark, and you know he would always, whether it was whether it was the main villain as he played in a Shady Deal or at the Sunny Acres, or or just a you know a, a, a one a, a one day walk on part. You know he would give exactly what the character needed, and you wouldn't have to worry about it. It was like money in the bank. Can you talk a little bit about? Uh... James Garner's recollections or viewpoint on Maverick and uh, how it affected his career and how it helped shake rock, excuse me, shape Rockford. Well, um, Jim's, Jim's recollection of Maverick is a little different than you might expect because um, what he remembers most about Maverick kind of relates to what was going on behind the scenes with Warner brothers at the time. On the one hand, you know, Jim is very, very cognizant of the fact that Maverick created opportunities for him that, uh, you know, led to opportunities in major motion pictures, which he did throughout the 1960s. And, um, you know, the, 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 the popularity of Maverick made possible the popularity of Rockford, which, you know, uh, was, was, was the role for which people know him today. And, uh, 
uh, Rockford opened other opportunities. But so, so Jim is very mindful of the fact that it all started with Maverick um, in, in many respects. But behind the scenes, you know, um, Jim was you know, Jim was like a lot of uh, we, we 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 talk about this a lot on TV Confidential. Tom. Uh, we've had we have a lot we, we've had a lot, we've had opportunities to talk to a lot of actors who began their career during the last stages of the old studio system, where a studio would sign you, where, where a studio would sign you for uh, seven years, and they would put you to work, and basically, you know, um, uh, they owned you, uh, and uh, you know. Working in the studio system is much different than, than than starting as a performer today, where you know the studio pretty much you know you're you're pretty much indentured. Your your salary was set, and they could put you in whatever project they wanted to put you in, and you had to do it because you were under contract. And there are two people, there are two types of people uh, I've 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 I've, I've talked I've, I've talked to. When it comes to you know, talking about the studio system, you either liked it because it meant you know you worked all the time and you were exposed to all sorts of things. You know you would learn how to you would learn how to dance. Uh, you would you were given voice lessons because sometimes the studios would put you in a musical. Uh, you know so you're exposed to all kinds of acting opportunities and all kinds of acting skills. So you either liked being a studio player or you hated it. And the reason why you hated it be, is because, you know, you were given no freedom. You had to do what the studio said. Jim, you know, Jim Garner was, you know, while he was good on screen, he always, he was, he, he kind of bristled, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Because he's, you know, he, he, he and the main point, the, the Jim's main bone of contention was the studio was making, he was starring in the most popular show uh, produced by Warner Brothers at the time. And, um, you know, uh, Warner Brothers was capitalizing on that by doing uh, Maverick Records and Maverick uh, Comic Books and Maverick Memorabilia. And the studio was making a lot of money off Maverick and Jim Garner's likeness. But Jim was not entitled to any of that because his salary was set by the studio. And under the terms of his contract, uh, you know, there wasn't much he could do about it. So he, he felt there was a disparity there. And um, he... You know, uh, so so that was that was always kind of that was always kind of bubbling beneath the surface, and but he was also I mean he he also knew that there wasn't much he could do about it until one day in 1960 there was a uh, uh, there was a writer strike that pretty much shut down the television industry and also the film industry. But uh, and because uh, you can't. You can't uh, you can't make any films, Tom, if there are no shoot uh, if there are no scripts to shoot. Okay, well, well ex explain every show that's on the Fox Network. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, but you, you you know what I'm saying. Yes, so, I do. I do. Uh, so now Warner Brothers, you know, got around that by by recycling scripts of old shows and just changing the names and changing the uh changing the titles and they, they would take they would take an episode they would take a script that was written for say 77 sunset strip change a few things around and then shoot it almost verbatim uh as a maverick for one of those other shows well while all this is going on uh you know the the studio suspended Jim and all the other actors by saying, "Okay, we, we can't pay you because you know we don't have any scripts." Well, Jim said, "That's bogus because you you've been recycling scripts all along by you know by by by, by just changing the name." And so don't tell me you can't pay me. Well, push came to shove, and uh, Jim. Ended up uh, filing a lawsuit for breach of contract. 
Warner Brothers counter, you know, countersued, and it went, it went, it went, uh, it, it went, it went to trial. Uh, and in the meantime, um, you know, Warner Brothers replaced Jim with Roger Moore as Bo Maverick, and you know, uh, and, and 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 Maverick continued production. So when uh, when when the, when the case went to court in November 1960, the court ruled in favor of James Garner, saying, "Yes, you were right. Your your contract was breached, and Warner Brothers did you wrong." Well, you know, Warner Brothers tried to get Jim to come back to the show, and Jim said no, and he he you know, he wanted to be his own person. He was basically a free agent, and he and that's basically what he did. You know, he went. Um, uh, he never he never signed a contract uh, with any one studio ever again. He would go from one project to another and make his own deal. And even with um, you know even 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 when he ended up signing with the Universal uh, to do uh, Rockford Files, he was not he was under contract to do Rockford Files, but he was not it, it was not the it was not the same as before where they could put him from one show to another. I mean, he was pretty much his own he was pretty much his own person, and so. So if you were to ask Jim, you know, uh, his memories of Maverick, they would be kind of clouded by some of that, you know, by, by some of the money issues and the disparity that was going on. However, however, uh, there, there are certain actors that he remembers, and we talk about that in Maverick Legend of the West. There's an old character, you, you talk about people like John Daner, you know, who are old character actors and old radio people. There's an actor named Gerald Moore, M-O. H.R. Oh, yeah. Phil Marlowe on the radio. On the radio, yeah. One of the great voices, uh, great radio voices, you know, of, of the golden age of radio. He did a lot of television uh, in the 50s and 60s, including a lot of Warner Brothers shows and about six or about five or six episodes of Maverick, including a couple of shows in which he played Doc Holliday. And uh, Jim Garner loved working with Gerald Moore. And, um, you know, you, and, and, and if you watch and if you watch some of the episodes together from the first season, which is now available on DVD, you can see that, you know, they, they work there. There's, there's good chemistry between the two and there's a lot of mutual respect. For them. So, Jim, you know, so he, he, he enjoyed working with Gerald Moore. He enjoyed working with Kathleen Crowley, who was another, you know, character, uh, uh, another contract player at Warner Brothers who did every virtually every show. And Jim enjoyed working with her. And of course, he enjoyed working with Jack Kelly. You know, I mean, there was uh, even though they were kind of rivals in the sense that uh, they were alternating leads, and the studio would, for, for for publicity purposes, the studio would play up against you know, play them up against each other. You know, um, they they worked well together on screen. They didn't socialize off screen, but they worked together on screen, and that's what mattered. Well, one of the great things also about Shady Deal at Sunny Acres is that. Uh you get to see really the whole arsenal of guest stars, you know, the recurring characters uh, in that particular episode. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that, that chemistry worked between James Garner and, and everyone that he had sort of coming on to the show? Well, uh, uh, before I do that, you know, while we're on the subject of, of shady deal at Sunny Acres, um, one uh, one of the treats of that show is, as as you mentioned, it features all the various you know um, players on Maverick at the time, you know, 1958, the second season of the show, including Ephraim Zemblins Jr. as Danny Jim Buckley, you know, who was sort of the um, who was who was sort of Maverick, you know, once removed. I mean, Maverick Maverick was a guy who was a, a situational eth ethicist. You know, he, he he didn't go by one set of rules. As long as it turned out, that he, he he would be he would be flexible with his ethics as long as long as it turned out positively for him and no one got hurt. Brett, um, uh, Danny Jim Buckley was 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 sort of you know Angel Martin, uh, was sort of the Angel Martin of the of the of the nineteenth century. I mean, he. You know, he had like no morals whatsoever, but he was very <laughs> charming. He was very charming about, you know, and, and because Ephraim Zimbalist is very charming. One of the new, you know, uh, one of the uh, one of the new additions of, of Maverick Legend of the West uh, second edition is that we have new interviews, uh, including um, several extensive uh, recollections 
from Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. working with James Garner and working on such shows as Shady Deal at Sunny Acres, which he, which Ephraim, you know, points out as one of the highlights of his uh, five episodes on, on Maverick. My last question is, um, dear God, will you please come back to the show someday? Oh God, oh God. Seriously, uh, it's been great. I have 9,000 other questions for you, but uh, if if at some point in time you'd love to come back, we would love to have you and, and update us on what's going on in television and uh, you know, the world of communications. Ed, I have huge respect for you and your work, and uh, it's just been a pleasure having you on the program. Tom, the, the feeling is mutual. Anytime you'd like to have me back on, I'll be happy to join you. All right. Well, everyone go out and get Maverick, Legend of the West at the... And by the way, Ed, this shows people how to, how great of a writer you are. It's at mavericklegendofthewest.com. I love how you coordinated those. I, 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 I thank you. I, I, I was very I was very proud of that. And uh, and as I say, if you order Maverick Legend of the West directly through me at the mavericklegendofthewest.com, type in the promo code Tom T O M, and uh, I will not only sign your copy of Maverick Legend of the West, but I will um, uh, I will give you a bonus gift. Uh, a 90-minute a, a uh, CD of our conversation about the life and career of James Garner. Uh, absolutely free if you type in the uh, if you type in the promo code Tom T O M when you order Maverick Legend of the West or MaverickLegendOfTheWest.com. Awesome, man! I'll I'll encourage everyone to do that, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you later. <laughs> like to thank both Chris Gore and Ed Robertson for taking their valuable time to be on the show and for admitting to people that they actually know me. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully show, not me, but the show on Facebook too, if the mood strikes you. And of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find everything, all the stuff, soup to nuts, dollars to donuts to cracker jacks you know and then there's the tom gully show store and we always encourage you to subscribe on itunes because it's free and if it's free it is for me follow us on twitter at atomic palooka 2 we have made so many new friends on twitter in the last couple weeks uh it also helps me increase my clout and cred ratings because if i get enough points we're all gonna go to the aces that's gonna do it for tonight i am out of here i gotta go talk to some people i'll talk to you much later each night jay johnson brings us in with the truth wagon go to jayjohnsonmusic.com and check him out and if you go to hitmanbluesband.com you're going to be able to get all that great stuff from the Hitman Blues Band. They take us out each night to the Catch-22 Blues, and we will see you next time. Well, the bug can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, a raccoon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies